to be with you tonight. There we go. <laughs> uh, for those of us that have not met yet, I look forward to meeting you after the service. I am, as Father Kevin said at the beginning, uh, Mother Sandy Richter. And for many years, my family and I worshiped right here alongside you, whether you were yet in the building or not, in spirit or in person. And we are uh, so grateful as COPA to have been birthed from such a beautiful family as this. Tonight's passage that I'm going to preach on um, is going to seem a little strange for the celebration of a worship, uh, of a new church, I'm sorry, but it strikes me that as we sit with this passage, especially the Exodus passage uh, tonight, it will focus us on who God has called all of us to be, whether we worship here in Wheaton or whether we worship in Oak Park or wherever we worship or whatever time of life that we live as, as people of God, we are seeking to live in these ways that God has called us to live. And at COPA, we've been working our way through Exodus this fall with the sermon series, A Formation of a People. And our hope has been that as we journey with the Israelites, as they become the people of God, that we also might learn a little bit more, might be formed alongside our ancestors. We've journeyed out of Egypt with Moses and the people, seeing God's purpose, determination, and power to save God's people from all kinds of bondage. We've gone into the desert with the people, growing hungry and thirsty and often discouraged and despairing in the wilderness part of our journey. But again, we've seen God's careful and creative provision, even in the face of what have seemed impossible barriers. As I'm going over this, I'm thinking of the life of Copa in the years that have passed and the ways that we have been purposed to become the ways that God has journeyed with us in our wilderness. And as COPA in the last few years, but also in the past few months as we've been in Exodus, we've eaten the bread of heaven. We've eaten the quail that seemed to come from nowhere. We've drunk water from a rock. And we felt the relief of our hunger and our thirst satisfied. We've also trembled at the foot of Mount Sinai as God's voice thunders out the guidelines for how we might best live our lives as God's people. We have been awed, we have been humbled, we have been grateful, and although we have often felt that we were lost, we have come to see ourselves known and seen by our loving God. Today's passage from Exodus 32 brings us to a difficult part in the formation process of God's people. A part that I would say all of us in this room most likely would hope to never have to walk through, and yet a part that at so many times in our lives we will find ourselves faced with. A time of betrayal on our part. A time of broken promises. A time of coming to terms with our own deep, and unfortunately powerful propensity to choose ourselves and our ways over God's ways. And 
whether we like it or not, we get a very sharp insight into God's response to this kind of betrayal. In verse 1, it says, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So last week's lectionary, which I know you here at Savior haven't been there with us, so I'm just going to remind you or tell you, um, we were in Exodus 20, where we received at the foot of the mountain the thundering voice of God as God graciously gave us the 10 best ways to live. In the intervening chapters, God called Moses up to the mountain to hear some specific details of how the people are to live together in the promised land, including specific instructions on how they were to use the gold that they were given as they left Egypt, along with other precious metals and materials. And in the intervening chapters, God tells Moses that these goods that God gave them to leave as enslaved people, but to leave with their hands full, that now God wants to use those materials to build a tabernacle, a place, a special place where the people could come close to God. You'll probably remember that earlier in Exodus, we learned that the people did not come close to God themselves. Moses was their intermediary. But now God has this beautiful plan for bringing the people into a place where they might come closer to God in worship. And God invited Moses, as he's talking with him about all of these details, to stay on the mountain, listening and receiving from God for 40 days and 40 nights. And apparently, those 40 days and 40 nights were too long for the people of God. Somewhere along the way, they grew impatient and they lost faith in Moses and in the goodness of what God had told them just however many days ago. Directly ignoring and in fact betraying the first and second commandments, they ask Aaron to make them gods, to make them physical objects that would go before them. Exodus 20 starts with this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the waters below. The same people who in Exodus 19 had committed to, quote, do everything the Lord has said. We have to wonder, do they have these commandments ringing in their ears, even as they're asking Aaron to betray them? Somehow, they've been able to silence God's voice, whether it's through fear and panic at Moses' absence. These seem to be a people who have a very short memory. And I have to say, I'm with them. No matter how good God is, no matter how many times God provides, I forget right away. I let my fear and panic take over. 
And so whether it was through fear and panic at Moses' absence or the other thing that also lives in me, pride or greed, or as God later describes them in this passage in verse 9, just being stubborn and stiff-necked, thinking that I know better than God how to run my life or how to run the world, if I'm honest. Somehow, as I said, they've been able to silence God's voice and have allowed these other emotions and impulses to take over. And so they go to Aaron and they demand, and it seems to me from what I've read, again, I I don't read Hebrew, that their asking of Aaron is stronger than just an ask. A lot of them come up to Aaron and say, make us a God. And for whatever reason, maybe out of Aaron's own fear, panic, maybe he thinks they're going to destroy him. I know as a leader, there are many times that I am tempted to give in to fear rather than to lead in, lean in, in leading as the Lord has directed me. So Aaron gives in, makes them a God. And then, as if adding insult to injury, they not only have this God, this idol, but they bow down to it. And they say to this idol, to the rest of their people, they say, look, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. You may have noticed, if you've read the Old Testament at all, what does God always say before giving the law? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. This for God is not, I would suggest, about God's reputation in some abstract sort of way. This is a reminder to the people, I love you. I am determined to save you. Stay close to me. I am the one who has the power to save. And yet, again, so quickly, they look to the idols and say that they are the gods who brought them out of Egypt, who brought them the life that they now want to live. And then they have a festival to celebrate. What strikes me and what I think is supposed to be a dramatic irony here is the terrible and tragic irony, that while the people are making their own gods to lead them, using the good things of God that God has given them to make their own way, to make their own gods, God is at the same time preparing a better way for them to use the gifts of God to come close to God and to live as the people of God. That's supposed to strike us. That's supposed to hit us in our gut. This is tragic. It's not just that the people are forgetful and rebellious. This is just such a deep sadness that God has this great plan for them, and they settle for something so much less. What really can a big statue made of gold do for them? but they want to make the things of God into their own place of worship, their own talisman in their pocket, their own fill-in-the-blank. 
If only this was a story far removed from our own experience. The question that haunted me as I prepared for this sermon was, how often do we as the people of God take the gifts of God and turn them into our own objects of worship? Our own idols that we praise and we look to for their supposed saving power. I want to make this painfully, and I'm going to get a little emotional as I share this story. I want to make this painfully close to us. The gifts of God, I want to stress this again, are given to us as the people of God to draw us closer to God and to God's work in the world. Even the tabernacle itself, whenever God is is talking about coming to worship him, it's for the people of God, but it is also for the purposes of the people of God then sharing that goodness with the rest of the world. God's purposes are not just for God's people. They're supposed to echo out throughout the rest of the world. And the gifts of God are given to the people for that purpose. For instance, we as the people of God are given so many amazing things. We are given particular kinds of work. We're given all kinds of different resources. We're given particular amounts of money, depending on what you make. That might be more, that might be less. We're given a certain charism. Church of the Savior has, is, known, is known for being a refuge for people. That's a particular gift that God has given to this people of God. Copa, we've been given different charisms. But we have been in, we've inherited that safe refuge. We find so many people that come to us and find a safe place. But like our ancestors before us, with our money, with our work, with our gifts, with our resources, we so often want to control them and use them for our own ends. But what we end up doing is turning those good things into objects of our own destruction and the destruction of those around us. This last week, you may have heard that um, the first officer involved in the death of Elijah McClain um, was sentenced. And if you're not familiar with Elijah McClain, I'm gonna tell you just a little bit of his story. He uh, was a black 23-year-old man who lived in Aurora, Colorado, which is a suburb of Denver. And one night, he went to the convenience store, and he was walking home, and he had a blood disorder that made his circulation really just not work very well. So he was dressed really warmly, including having a ski mask on. And he was walking through the neighborhood, he was listening to music, and he was kind of moving his body around. He was known to be a pretty quirky kind of guy. And a neighbor in this, I'm just gonna name it, very wealthy part of Aurora, Colorado, called the police and said that there was someone acting sketchy walking through their neighborhood and wearing a ski mask. The police arrived soon thereafter, and we don't know all of what happened because somehow their body cams were thrown to the side, but eight seconds after they arrived, they were in an altercation with Elijah McClain. I don't want to traumatize anyone here, so I'm not going to go into all of the details, Um, but 
if you look it up, you can hear the things that he said as he was in this altercation, which was a lot of, I can't breathe. While he was throwing up, he was saying things like, oh, I'm so sorry I did that. I really respect you. I'm a really nice person. This young man was a vegetarian. His friend said that he wouldn't even harm a fly. And the police said that he was so out of control that it took three of them to hold him down. When the paramedics arrived, they gave him a lethal dose of uh, ketamine. And that was in 2019. The coroner ruled suspicious circumstances after George Floyd's death. Uh, the NPR station in Colorado brought the story back up again and sort of kept the momentum of the conversation until um, the courts revisited the whole thing. And now here we are in 2023 and the officers are starting to be held accountable. I say all this to say, there are so many circumstances where we get into where we're uncertain of what to do. I'm not, I'm not trying to say I was in the moment or I understand all the situation or anything like that. But I do want to point out when I heard it again this week, I was particularly struck with how similar the situation is to something that could happen in Oak Park. Two weeks ago, we live one block south of North Avenue. A lot of people who live in the apartments close to us park their cars on our street overnight because they don't have anywhere else to park. Someone's car was disabled and it was in front of our house for, I don't know, three or four days. And we found out that our neighbor called the police and said there was a suspicious car out in front of the house and could they come and deal with it. This man who owned the car had been working for days to figure out how to get his car working again so that he could, of course, get to the things in his life that he needed. I have seen, as I'm walking down the street, people yelling at, and I'm not saying this is a good thing, all of us are afraid of our packages getting stolen, but someone took a package and started walking off with it and a a black person and a white person from one of the houses yelled out the window, I'm calling the cops, you need to stop doing that. I just want to point out how easy it is for those of us that live in places of privilege to take those things of privilege and turn them into idols. My Amazon package is not worth what might happen if I Man, I'm just telling you how I see it, okay? My $20 whatever I ordered from Amazon is not worth calling the police on a person of color in an affluent situation. Because I'm sorry, but in so many cases, the police, this is so complicated. I'd be glad to have a conversation with you. But I have to name this. I have to name the fact that we who have much so often think it is ours and we have to do everything in our power to protect it. But as the people of God, we are told that nothing is ours. Everything is a gift from God. And anything that has been entrusted to us as stewards is for the purpose of bringing us and those around us closer to the good work of God. And the good work of God is not protectionism. The good work of God is healing the broken, is sharing with the hungry. 
The good work of God is bringing the holistic peace of God to the world. And I think we really, really need to consider those ways in which we have been formed by the world that we live in and by the Christianity that I have been raised in to just not consider a lot of these things. But to think more about my house, my safety, my, again, you can fill in the blank. The next part of this passage is even harder, so take a deep breath. <laughs> God's response, thank you. God's response to the people's rebellion is not mild. God knows what's at stake when the people of God take the things of God and misuse them. It is, it's so easy, again, for us, I think about the things that I confess, and sometimes they're substantial, and often they're very minor. I have been a Christian, enculturated in Christian life, and I'm an Enneagram too, like, I like to do what's right. So my things that I think are really the pressing betrayals of God, it's easy for me to not really see the impact that they have. But God knows that when we turn away from God's good ways, the stakes are high. When I choose, for instance, gosh, I could think of so many examples. I'm trying to think of one that's actually me and not possibly someone else. Um, because I think that's important. That's, that's what I want to lead in right now. I'll just say this, it was very tempting for me, probably my biggest temptation when we started Christ Our Peace, was to build the church in ways that would attract the most people. I really, really wanted our church to survive. I frankly knew that I would feel really foolish if COPA didn't thrive. I had felt that God had called me to this, that God had called us to this, and I felt a very heavy load on myself about whether that was gonna happen or not. And if I would have led out of that place of fear and anxiety, I guarantee I would have built that into the DNA of Christ our peace. Anxious leaders have anxious organizations. Anxious leaders of God have anxious followers of God. Aaron was an anxious leader, let's say. Look what happened. What if Aaron would have stood up and said, no, did you not hear God? No, I know Moses is gone. I'm scared too. I don't know what's happening up there. But we have seen God. We have seen God's faithfulness. What would that have done? So what I'm saying here is that God knows the stakes of what's happening inside of us as we're trying to live out our faith. And when we turn away from God, it does not only impact us. It has an impact on all of those around us. And so God is mad. And we don't often feel comfortable with God's anger and wrath. I don't feel comfortable with God's anger and wrath. I'm just gonna say that. I read this passage for the past many weeks because I knew I was preaching here, and I just kept saying, God, I need a word from you. I don't really like this story. Can you please give me a word from you? And then a few days ago, I said, God, could you please show me Jesus in this story? And what came to me was Jesus in the temple. 
when Jesus goes into the temple and he sees that the um, money changers who, if you don't know the context, I'm just going to tell you one moment. Um, when you would go to the temple, you could go and you could buy the things that you were then supposed to sacrifice in the temple. But what the money changers were doing is they were making a profit. Rather than having their work there be a service to the people of God, to help the people of God come closer to God, they were basically extorting people, making money for themselves out of this thing that was supposed to be part of their act of worship. And Jesus was mad. Jesus was mad because what these people were doing was not only going to hurt them and their own like distance from the Lord because of their own corruption, but also had major ramifications for any of the people, particularly the poorest people who would come and try to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And so Jesus turned over their tables and said, this is a place of prayer and you have turned it into a den of robbers. They were robbing the people of God, the real, true followers of God, of their worship. And here, God is mad. God has called the people of God to come to know the sacrificial, unconditional, saving love of the God of this universe. And what have they done? They've stolen from God and turned those gifts of God into objects of destruction. I'm not going to go into the whole thing that was happening there at the foot of the mountain, but the word pagan revelry or revelry, that means a lot more than just what it sounds like there. And whenever there's that kind of revelry going on, there are people who are being exploited. Yes. We need to really understand what's happening here. This is not just the, the story that we heard, you know, when we were growing up and it was like, oh, don't disappoint God because then he'll get really mad at you. That is not what's going on here. God knows that God's work in the world is being jeopardized by what the people have done in betraying him. And I want to say, whenever we see God's anger, we need to understand something. God's anger, God's wrath serves God's good purposes. God's wrath burns against all that is against us. I'm gonna say that one more time. God's wrath burns against all that is against us. The people, we, don't see that our pursuit of our own gods will lead to our own ruin, but it will. We don't, we're short-sighted. Remember, if we have such a short memory of God's goodness, I guarantee we also have a very short memory of our own complicity in the harm of other people. Let's think about, do I think often about where I'm buying my clothes and who was involved in getting them to me? Do I think often about who, where I'm getting my food and how that was brought to me? I'm just naming some things here that I think are important for us to consider. We have a short memory. And that's why God in God's wisdom and grace calls the people to worship Yahweh only because worship and devotion and trust in Yahweh is the only path to true life. But we as a stiff-necked people continually buck against that reality. And God knows that that rebellion in our heart must be destroyed. 
if we are to live as God's people. And I think one of the invitations to us is, do we want that rebellion in us to be destroyed? I know these are hard words. These are hard words for me as well. This last portion here about Moses' response to God, I just want to say a whole sermon could and should be preached on that. That's not where I felt. (laughs) That's not where I felt led to tonight. But I, I want to say I think there's two takeaways here. God dignifies humanity to be partners in God's redemption. There's something real happening here. Don't explain away what's happening here. God allows Moses a part in the story of forming the people of God for the purposes of redemption. That's incredible. And we see that in the life of Jesus, obviously. Jesus actually entrusts the people to go and share the good news. And Praise Jesus, and also, wow, I can't believe you've done this, Jesus. God empowers and invites us to go out and be a part of God's work in the world. We are dignified as true partners in redemption. And also we see, and this is very important to realize, whether or not it is literal that God changed God's mind, and if you want to know my opinion about that, again, I will talk to you about that, but I'm not going to get lost in that right now. Whether or not that is literal, what is clear in this passage is that God is always faithful to God's character and promises. God said, I will make you descendants as numerous as the stars. God said, I will be your people and you will be my God. And God meant it. And in this moment, he allowed Moses to be the one to remind him of that. I don't know how to understand all of that. If you do, that's great. But what we do see is that God is faithful to that. God did not bring the disaster that he had threatened. So what's our invitation? Put simply, it is, as the letter to the Philippians makes clear, I think, one final thing. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Fix our eyes as individuals and as a people squarely on the things of God and on the person of God. Because only God can teach us how to live as the people of God. Only God can teach us and form us into people who can hold the gifts and privileges that we have as well as hold our pain and struggle and fear and panic and all the rest. And then together... Let us ask God to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a will ready to be aligned with God's good purposes in the world. At COPA, we are really pushing into some of these things. We are hoping to grapple with these realities because our mission statement talks about being called and gathered to cultivate and embody God's peace in our community. That's a weighty call. It is a call that we can only, as we are reminded every week, live out as instruments of Christ our peace, as connected to the God who works from within each of us and within us as a people to be able to turn our eyes to Jesus and to learn to live as God's people. And so I would just ask you to pray for us 
in these specific ways as we seek to ask hard questions about our wealth, as we seek to partner with others in the community in a way that is mutual rather than overpowering, as we seek to better know and understand even the needs that are around us and the ways that God is already at work there. Specifically, uh, I would just love to share with you just for a, a quick moment um, some of the really good things that we feel like God is putting the Spirit's hand upon. One is a community fridge. Um, this is something that I, I've never seen uh, here in Wheaton. It, must, it might exist now. But it's different than a pantry where you come and you get on a roll and then you come a certain, you know, once a month or whatever it might be. This is more of an anonymous kind of thing. Um, the church that we rent from and our church uh, put together the money to build a fridge and pantry that just live outside the church building. And people can come and give to that at any time, and people can come and take from that at any time. And that really felt it's something that exists in other parts of Oak Park, but it wasn't in on the south side of Oak Park, which is where we are. And so that felt like a real opening of the spirit, and God provided the money for it. And it's really been exciting in the past few months to see um, there's a newer member that came to our church uh, a few months ago, and as he prayed, he just felt the spirit really impress upon him the way in which the Lord was using the community fridge and pantry. And something that we could easily have just said, oh, it's nice that it's out there. We hope people put things into it, has really now turned into a vibrant part of our ministry that people are excited to take part in, that people are going on a, rota on a rotation basis to go pick things up from a local grocery store. And they've, the same group has got our congregation working on a rotating place based on our last name of when we bring things. And that was, that was all the spirit putting God's hand on this thing and saying, pay attention to this. That's what it looks like when we look to God and all of the things of God. God directs us to how to use our resources in that way. And we really sense that there's even more that God has for us there. So pray for us, with us, about that. Um, along with that, we have this amazing partnership with a black church in the Lawndale community that only God could have opened up. Jesus Word Center, led by Pastor Maddie Phillips. Another church led by a woman who has been leading for many years longer than I have, 30 years longer than I have, who has taken me under her wing, whose church has really opened up their hands to us. But I gotta be honest, we're a little reticent. We don't really know how to keep going in this connection. Will you pray for us? We need courage. We need wisdom. We wanna do well, and often I think we're so afraid of not doing well that we hold ourselves back. So will you pray for us in that? And then lastly, as I mentioned before, just we really, our leadership team especially, has felt God asking us to think in God's ways about our own individual wealth. And we've thought about the Benevolence Fund as like a place where we might gather some of that. And that's hard. That's a hard ask for all of us. As the leader, I don't even really know what God's asking yet, but we need wisdom. Again, we feel the spirit of God's finger there and we wanna pay attention. So. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you for living into your charism as a safe place where I could come and heal 
and hear the call of God on my life, where I could accept the call of God, even though it had been like ringing for many years, where I could finally accept it. And thank you for sacrificially giving for so many years so that we can now become the generous people of God in our community as well. And I just pray with you that all of us would continue to be open to these better ways of God so that we might become the people of God who stand around God's throne all together, worshiping and praising God, giving up all that hinders us, and being freed to just be the eternal, beautiful bride of Christ. It's coming, and I'm excited. Amen. Amen. Amen.